forever. Dog. There was that one teacher who, you know, was like, I'm going to teach world literature and I'm going to teach theater. And the rest of the school didn't really care. And she sort of single-handedly made sure there was theater in our school. Welcome to Household Faces, the podcast where a character actor interviews other character actors. I'm your host, John Ross Bowie. You might know me from Speechless, The Big Bang Theory, or that one episode of Melissa and Joey where I play a shady Bernie Madoff type character. Our guest this episode is Mary Lynn Ricegub. Chloe from 24, Gail the Snail from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, so many more credits, Larry Sanders show, Road Trip, which we're actually both in, and we talk a lot about that. I've known Marilyn for years, but I didn't really know her origin story, so this is as much a journey uh, for me as it is for you. Please enjoy Marilyn Ricegub. Oh, this is great. Um, you're on the younger side of the people we have interviewed. Really? Uh, yeah, I'm pleased to report. I was at this, uh, this is total side note of what you're saying, but I was at this cabaret show. Have you ever been to Vibrato on Beverly Glen? No. Vibrato. Have you oh, heard of that, it? That, that jazz club yes. at the top? Okay, yeah, I was I've, like, I've heard of it. whatever, whatever. It's gorgeous. The space is gorgeous. And then somebody tagged that it was Herb Albert's vibrato. And I was like, holy shit, he must have designed this because it's like a mini, you know, it's like a perfectly designed, uh, what do you call that? Like a, where it's a round shaped thing that you sit in and it goes up like the Greek. Uh, uh, amphitheater? Yeah, but there's inside? another word. It's, it's just a small like round shell anyway. But one of the comedians, I was mad. One was really good. One was not good, but it was mostly music. But the one woman, she's like, yeah, um, she made some remark about TikTok, like how it's not going to last. And like, but it was, it's that thing that you say like 12 to 15 years ago of like huh, apps. And it's like, <laughs> I, I'm sorry, but TikTok is everything. Like, it's, it's so funny, like clearly of a an older person in an older crowd that was like, yeah, it's stupid. I'm like, well. I feel like we were saying the same thing about reality TV 20 years ago. Totally. Then, oh, my God. And then when we were proven wrong, the best of us <laughs> shut the fuck up. That's right. That's right. Oh, my God. That's so true. Constantly. Like 15, 20 years ago, it's like, what the fuck is this? This is a fucking flash in the pan. I can Whatever. remember being on the set of 24 with when it was still flip phones or like maybe a razor phone. We're using this, phone. by the way. We are. We are. Okay, this good. is all part of the podcast. Okay, good. Perfect. Just go ahead. So good. We're in. Uh, so the flip phone. And I remember um, <laughs> our director, executive producer was showing us this next technology, like where you can watch stuff on your phone. And back then it was like, we're going to do a com like a car company is going to sponsor and we're going to film videos that will be on this smaller device. But it was all really clunky and really new and it seemed insane. And I just remember like having a visceral why would anyone watch anything on a phone this size? Why would you ever watch a show like that, you know? One of the first commercials I did, the one that made me a SAG must join, was for the Samsung 3500 for Sprint, which allowed you to check your email on your phone. And we laughed. Oh, how we <laughs> laughed. Um, this is summer 1999. And we were like, and the whole thing was like, I was playing one of a series of computer nerds. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, and, and me and my nerd friends finally get to go outside because our phone will let us check our email. So it was this whole thing of us like emerging into the daylight, you know, squinting against the, the, the brutal sun. Uh, and the whole idea was you know, you've now got freedom because you can check your email on your phone. Dude. No further comment. No further comment. Are you, I mean, you get this question a lot, I'm sure, but are you a a, a techie person? Was, was, Ugh, did no. Chloe make sense for you initially? No, no, it didn't. Okay. Absolutely not. I mean, anything, even like doing this quick time, I'm like, oh, like anything that's remotely I have to. And I suspect a lot of people are like that just with like passwords, looking for something in my computer. I'm like, I'm out. My brain just goes, nope. Like people who edit now, because that's the other thing now with self tapes, especially like I worked in Atlanta last year and all these people that are coming up and there's a whole industry there. 
will be on set and this um, younger woman is like editing her self tape, you know, and doing a fade and putting music and putting her credits. And that's just like expected now. And it makes me irate. I'm like, I don't want to do all that stuff. I just want to do the thing that I do. We're, we're, we're supposed to EP our own lives now. It's insane. And it's like totally normal to do that when you're coming up, I think. Uh, and I did I, self-tapes, of course, during the pandemic even more. But, you know, my agent was like, there's an app where you can, but you have to record your own voice doing the other half of the dialogue. And then I was always trying to match the speed of my half-assed me doing the other to fit my acting <sighs> into that. and then. It was the app that I couldn't, you know, like it, it would be like, you just did a rehearsal. And I would just, I, I didn't know where the takes were within the app. So that was exhausting. And then finally, one day she said, why don't you go? There's this couple, they're both actors. I drive an hour to get there, but I fucking love it because I've had the experience of trying to do all these self-tapes. So I drive to his house. I go in his back house. He's got a backdrop set up. I mean, it's a simple setup. I could do it, but I sit. He's um, already looked at the sides. He, he, so he's not doing a cold read. He's got some stuff for and, you. And, and and yes, and he's an actor, so he'll make like light, oh. light suggestions. Oh, here's the other thing. He reads out loud the action and the stage directions. I'm like... <laughs> Because sometimes that's like all it takes. To, you're, you're like, oh, yeah, I either forgot to read that or I read it a long time ago. You know what I mean? Like he's very it's it's humane and it's real. And it's all the little details of like, oh, that's I get to be the character now. Like I actually get to read. I'm not worried about the little pieces of paper I have taped on my phone or if my voice, my own voice back to me. So anyway, he's got the phone. He presses play. Or, oh, and then he's like, do you want to read through it once first? Yes, I do. And we read Bless. through the scene completely. You know, and my agent is like, wow, those auditions are a lot better. I'm like, really? Are they? Because that's, to me, is how <laughs> you're supposed to be in relation to other people, which segues me into my role as computer genius uh, that we have in common, uh, nerd, uh, techie, uh, yeah, there were a lot of times where I didn't act with the person. I acted with a screen, but that's another. She starts that way, Chloe. Right. But and I, I was watching it in in chunks. And we've had a few twenty four people on on the show. Oh, you so have kind of bouncing around. We had oh, Xander Berkeley. Oh, on, nice. Who was dead? I think by the time you came on the show, um, in the show. Let me make that very clear. Xander Berkeley's alive and well. <laughs> um, but um, but if you skip ahead like a season and a half with you, you're this fully dimensionalized character. You're central to the plot. You're the only one who knows Bauer is actually alive. You've got a love interest. That's a really good point. Computer people never get a love interest. The most I've ever been dimensionalized as a computer geek is, oh, we found out that John is actually hacking the casino. So we have to, we have to arrest him. Like that's the most <laughs> dimension I've gotten as a computer nerd in the many I have played. Wow. So was that something you, did you ask for that or did that just kind of land in your lap? That's a really good point. The way you just sort of broke it down like that, um, because that really is uh, such a gift that you never expect. And of course, everything after that, I'm like, where's my dimension? Like I'm, you're, I'm supposed to get to play like characters now, right? You know, and now cut to 12 years later, they're like, can you audition for this two episode arc of a, and I'm like, I can, but will I? I don't know. It's like when, once you've sort of had a taste of playing things. Um, and also on that show, it, it is true. I did have more to do later. I was going to say that there's so much plot on 24, especially yeah. early on. I almost feel like people were reading into who and what my character was because a lot of those early episodes, I would just have a line or two, but because yeah. there's so much plot, there's not enough room. So anything that you can supply within your little scene goes a long way. How do you mean? The way I delivered stuff or, you know, people mentioned my scowl or an eye roll. And so if I'm doing something that seems charactery, it has a lot more weight within a show where you're just, you're trying to follow all the storylines and you're trying to get all this information. 
I guess I'm just patting myself on the back is really what it comes down to. Go ahead. That's to, what this podcast is, is for. Is that, you know, when I had these little scenes, it created a bigger character than the actual work I was doing. I, I didn't, I didn't have a lot to do, but it, but it started this seed and then people really didn't like me at first. They were really annoyed with me. Were you reading like internet comments and shit or? Yeah, not, not so much back then. I mean, certainly I was, but I just, yeah, it was like fans of the show because I, when I entered on that, to that show, there was already a fervor for it. I mean, it was, yeah. people think I started at the beginning just because it was already like uh, just glued in people's psyche and there, and there was a fervor for it. And, and, and still to this day for Jack Bauer and for his mission. And so at first I was just like this superfluous, like, what is she doing? Like, what's wrong with her? Like they're doing serious stuff at the CTU. Why is she acting that way? She's getting, you know, and then the turn happened when I don't know if it was an accident. I, I would have to go back and watch some of those early episodes. They started writing me helping Jack. And then that's the thing that grew because people were like, then speaking of dimension, that it's like, oh, well, she's annoying and she's, we didn't like her, but now she's helping our guy. So now we love her. And because it was also unexpected. Same thing people always bring up, the one where I had to fight the, um, terrorist and I ended up with, you know, a gun in my hand is because I had all the history of, um, that's not my character. So when you get a good surprise like that, where I'm not supposed to be doing that. And I think same thing with like helping Jack, people were like, she's the only one. And then it just grew from there, you know? Well, I think that you, you made a way, you found a way to make a ton of exposition compelling and idiosyncratic. I think. And I think that goes a long way towards like, listen, if this is just facts that I have to do to get us into the act break, then I might as well have fun with it. And that comes across when you're watching. It. I love your like particular insight because that's such a um, true, it, ma it made this like flood of memories of a lot of the cast bonding that we did is that was a challenge of the job, especially, you know, characters like you should have Jim, uh, James Morrison on uh, Bill Buchanan. Yeah. Who, yeah had to deliver these long speeches that were all exposition. And so the job would be, how do I do this and keep it interesting and not make it seem like the plot points and the exposition. And, and we all had those, you know, we all had those and it was uh, a lot of fun bonding over that. I'm going to make this about me for one Please moment. Do. So the first time I encountered you, um, I, I have a very small role in the film road trip. And the day before I shot my scene, I went to set and they were shooting your scene. <laughs> I went into that, that thing. I, I, they, someone had fucked up at the table read and they'd fired them. And, and I knew the screenwriter from UCB, Scott Armstrong. Mm -hmm. uh, they put me on tape and they said, if he will fly himself down to Atlanta. And I think like, I'll fly myself down to Atlanta for a DreamWorks movie. Sure. What am I doing? And so I, I went down. But the night before, I, I, I was on set for your scene where you play the uh, blind woman. And what was interesting about that is that we both have one scene, but those scenes are cut proof because otherwise the rest of the movie won't make sense. They need to find out where they get the bus. They need to find out where they get the bus from. And for me, they need to find out that the kids have maxed out Fred Ward's credit card. Like those are the I play a waiter who tells Fred Ward who has to be snotty to Fred Ward, which was to fucking terrifying. Um, but I remember watching you and like and Todd was just Todd Phillips, the director, was just like kind of side coaching off camera and you were just so amenable to it. And I was green. I'd done a couple oh, of commercials. Oh, interesting. I was super fucking green. And I was watching this and I thought, oh, this is this is how it's done. You know, you just you were just really on your feet. How much do you remember about that that uh, experience? Wow, that's such a cool perspective. Cause I don't remember how many takes or what direction I was giving. I certainly remember him. I remember the audition for that. I remember being obnoxious in the in the in the audition because back then in the 90s I had no social like issues and I would wear like dirty shirts to auditions and I'd be like what's going on what's going on with you I mean I had a uh a drive and a, a and a vulnerability and and maybe an oddness that really carried me a long way and it was such a charmed period of my life but looking back <laughs> I was like 
I didn't, it took me years to realize, oh, the casting directors are on your side. They want you they to want, fill the hole and they have. by and large, they're in it with you. Like there's nobody else that's more like going through and, and, and they don't get the glory of, you could call it glory, of, of having the performance, even in the room. You know, sometimes when you leave the audition, you're like, well, I hated everything up until the part I performed, but at least I got to perform and that, that felt good. But, uh, I used to just be like, like the world is against me and I, and I wouldn't work hard on stuff. I would just be like, ugh, I wanted it, but I just, I had no work ethic. I had no approach. So anyway, I remember sitting in the room and it wasn't even like it would have been hard to memorize. Like it, there weren't that many sides, but I remember sort of referring to the paper and making a joke about I'm blind so I can look at these paper. Like I'm, I don't know. That seems opposite logic now, but I was <laughs> made some joke about, I'm just going to read from the paper or something. I don't, I don't know. It doesn't even make sense now, but uh, I can keep my face down because I wouldn't be looking up anyway. Something. Some sort of anyway, that was logic. a long story to say that I somehow, I think made him laugh and maybe Scott knew me from comedy. Cause I didn't put it together with him l l later. Um, I remember. Yeah. So you're saying you saw my scene and you saw like me saw, getting feedback you, and, and, and going like, okay, okay. Todd was just like right next to the camera looking at you. Not, I don't think he was looking at the monitor and he was just like, uh, okay, great. And now you're vaguely annoyed and now you flip him off and you, you flip off. I think it's Sean William Scott. You did yeah. the scene with, is that right? And then, you know, Seven months later, I, I'm at a screening and, and they kept the uh, you giving the middle finger. And I was like, wow, man, it, it was just this it was this kind of seismic moment for me because I was just sort of watching how the how the sausages get made. But it was just interesting, like how much spontaneity was allowed. Yeah. And, 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 and now that you're bringing me. it up, especially with with Todd, he was trying a bunch of different things. And truth be told, I probably had a lot of anxiety about that. My son has this too. Like one time he gets it from me. It's a great quality. One time, like we, Oh, my, my son is an anxious mess and it's almost entirely my fault. Well, he, I, I, that, but I'm also talking about the, <laughs> I haven't seen him Did since he was a little baby. No, I want, I want to <laughs> meet this guy. I want to meet them when they're older. Your kids, I haven't seen them in years. Um, but my son, I mean, he was, my friends were doing like a fake ghost hunting thing and they did the, the, the opening credits where like the clock, broken clock flies by, the mirror, the ghostly, and he was a demon child. So all he had to do was stand there and they were just going to use his image in the opening credits. He did it once. They asked him to do it again. And he goes, why? I already did it. And, and the kid is like five. And I tried to explain to him. I showed him the monitor. I go, it really is not, you did great. It's just on this end, technically, they want to, and he's like, I, I did it. Like, why are you telling me what to do? And I think, you know, it's hard to find that joy when you come from the streets, like I do. Like, I wasn't totally versed in improv and like taking a breath and being comfortable and having fun with it. So sometimes when someone's like giving you notes, it feels like an assault where you're like, what, wasn't that good enough? Like where you have that insecurity of like, was it wrong? But you know- It, it took me forever to learn that. It took me forever to understand that right? notes are just options. They're just options. You're doing fine. They just want to have some options later on when they're cutting it together. And, and a testament to him in that moment for taking so long. And like you said, that could have been cut had it not been, but he just was like, I'm here. This is how we're filming it. And he had the wherewithal to- to be able to, because that's an improv on his part, to be like, okay, put, you know, flip him off here or stand there or be more annoyed there. So it's like you're finding it while you do it. And, and ultimately, that's the dream. You want to have that freedom. But it's, I probably was like really amenable, but inside I was like, am I doing something wrong? Like, did, didn't we get it? Or like, what's the problem? But you want that. <laughs> you want that freedom and you want that ability to like try stuff like that's the best. You had done Larry Sanders by that point. Yeah. 
So what was the Larry Sanders experience like? Was, were you, how was Shandling? Was he Buddhist Shandling yet? Or, or what was he like to work with? Yeah, he had shades of Buddhist Shandling. And honestly, I was in a, an, an office dressing room for, with no windows, taking like long, weird naps on a couch for hours. And I would hear stories of him throwing the script out and starting over and stories of stuff happening on set. But I was so green that I was just like, oh, like I didn't, I didn't really fully grasp what was going on. And thank God I only did have a scene or two because that was like, those are, you know, the big guns. I, I do remember like doing table reads and the stuff coming alive at the table read because all the comedy was so, um, character based and it was and I know he was he had this acting teacher that was all about your emotional life and your truth and I think this that it was the beginning of Buddhist shandling but you know he never lost speaking of anxiety he never lost like super heady perfectionist shandling and but obviously that's what was so great about that show because it hit, hit the character encompassed that um and that was like, those were the early days of like Judd Apatow being on there. And so it was incredible. But in terms of like my actual stories that I'm cognizant of is not much because I was just like, out, I was out of my mind. Like I was very lucky to be able to learn on the job, but it was, I was definitely out of my depth. And it was like, you know, that was my moment at that table read, like you coming and watching Todd Phillips. It was like, oh shit. Like I watched like that and that, I loved that, how things just came to life in the table read that when you read it on paper, I was like, I don't even understand why that's funny until the person delivered it the way that they did. And I was like, oh, this is my favorite. I didn't understand what it was, but this is my favorite kind of comedy. Hey everybody, Tim Heidecker here with huge news. Office Hours Live recorded another episode live it was one of our great ones with the great Rory Scovel, who's got a new special out on MAX. Oh, yeah. And the Trinity's here. DJ Doug Pound. Yes, hello. And Victor Berger the Fourth. Hi, hi, hi. Can't we, wait for the fifth. We enjoy the heck out of doing the show, and so will you. If you find us on the podcast app of your choice, now. I'm just realizing something as I'm looking here at your resume. You have a, 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 a rich heritage of hopping onto shows once they're established <laughs> phenomena. And we have actually a lot of people like that on the show. We could, because we're, we're interviewing predominantly, you know, we're uh, people who do a lot of guest work and people who do, um, who are rarely number one on a call sheet. So we have people who hop on on like season four of something. Um, but you've got a ton of them. I'm Larry Sanders. It's always sunny. 24, obviously. Um, you had an arc on Brooklyn Nine-Nine that didn't start till like season three or yeah. four. Um, are are you now adept at like just being the hired gun who comes in, who hops onto the moving train or? or... I don't know. I don't really think about it that way. I mean, over on. Good, nor should you. I'm sorry I put you in your head. Well, I'm so sorry. Uh, well, <laughs> over on my side of the world, it's just trying to get another job. And, and I just, yeah. I feel very, the thing I will say is, if I look back at my resume, whatever my aesthetic is or my taste is or the things that I've been associated with, it's been, you know what I mean? Like what you like and what you're drawn to is also drawn to you is, is, is kind of like the gift of that. I don't know how that happens. That's interesting. That's interesting. The idea that what you like is you will eventually draw to you. I, I think about that idea of like how we tend to, if we're lucky, attract the work that we would watch yes. anyway. It is lucky because I'm sure there's a lot of people, whatever. I'm not sure what that conversation looks like, but it's like people who have a certain look that are just like, this is, you know, I play the angry criminal or whatever. I mean, I, I'm hesitant to say like you always play quirky roles because that's incredibly dismissive, but there's always like a level of, outsider with a ton more going on under the surface in in the roles you play 
and sometimes it's it's you know we we know one thing about Chloe and then we find out so much more. She's capable of so much more. Or if you take the look at uh, Gail the snail and it's always sunny, she's initially disgusting, and then we find out she's even worse than we realized. <laughs> and it's this kind of like there's an incredible moment in your first Gail the snail episode where. Where you earlier on in the episode you say something like, I'm finally coming into my body, and then like at the end of the your mom mentions that you're 33. <laughs> She's even worse than we realized. <laughs> it's just nightmarish. Uh fuck it. Let's go over to Gail the Snail. Um uh, I I <laughs> fucking character. Oh my god. And that's what How they did- told me when I got involved. They said, you know. You, we are, are, we are already gross. You have to be that much grosser than we are. (laughs) That's the thing to distinguish yourself as disgusting on that show (laughs) is, uh, is a high wire act. And there's a, there's an amazing moment, like before you even show up on screen where they're just talking about you and Charlie Day is like really skeptical. Like she can't be as bad as you say, you come over, you're doing that slurping thing, which we're going to talk about in a moment. And then. And then Charlie Day is immediately converted. Like, okay, she's the worst person I've ever seen in my life. This is disgusting. How do I even stand around? How great this? is that? You're giving me one of your famous insights that you've been doing this whole conversation. But like, I I forgot about that. Where how great is that? They're just talking about the character before she even gets there. Just well, that's you're, a, that's you're like already old... like, who is this? Like, what's the what's her deal? Well, there's an amazing. Yeah, you know, there's a, a thing I heard really early on when I started is that you know you you don't just look at what the character says you look at what people say about the character and you are given like a ramp up before you show up on screen you are they lay out caitlin and uh and what's his face uh glenn lay it all out and you are it is clear that we're about to see something awful how much of gail is you there's that slurping thing you do where you just seem to have excessive saliva is that mary lynn that can't be that is me i i have to control it for every other part I do, I actually have to, it's like losing an accent. I have to lose the slurp. I I had to do it for this podcast. I had to lose the slurp. Yeah. That the slurp, I I feel like that happened. And all three of the guys, it was like a super collaborative. I don't know if it was like an accident. And then it was like, yeah, keep doing that. It was one of those things where we were all just laughing and like, I'm like, really? And they're like, yeah, like, like they just egged it on. And, um, it was making us all laugh, but uh, I purposely did not. And also I don't do this anyway, but I did not want to create a character before I got on set because I was worried that it would be a caricature or too sketchy. And that sort of was happening with the hair, makeup and wardrobe. We went back and forth day of a few times, you know, cause, cause the work, cause it's hard to not, she's such a ridiculous character that the wardrobe was like, you know, it was like, nope, like telegraphing grossness or, or, or weirdness too much. And so we went back and forth and that's how it was in like finding it in the moment too. And that was like super fun because I did, I really did do some, and that's my favorite kind of stuff too, where I, I had enough skill to sort of in the moment, find my inner Gail the snail you know, I'm glad I didn't pre-make those decisions because I like to see what's happening on the set and get get the feedback from them. And I think there was a couple of takes or even just the beginning read-throughs was like, you're too likable. Like, you need to be more disgusting. Probably my tendency is to play it more realistic as opposed to like a sketchy character. And then it was like going deeper and deeper and seeing how far I could push it and still be like, was that too much? You know, and it was like never too much, of course. Right, right. But right. that it's like, it's like the funnest part. It, it's so. I mean, there is a there is a a light. I'm going to put this in musical terms. There is a light motif in the character <laughs> about how bad she is at hand jobs. Like there's a, a recurring, like a like a melody that keeps coming back in an opera. There is this. This constant reference to how terrible she is at giving hand jobs. It's just nightmarish. I love it so much. It's so fun to watch. Um, you, you were talking about losing an accent. Um, and uh, you're from Michigan. You, you didn't grow up in Detroit. You were born there, but you grew up outside. Yeah, right? in the suburbs. In the suburbs. You said something on your on your stand-up special, the one you recorded during the pandemic in what looks to be your garage. You did your research. Did you watch my special? I did. Oh, dear, dear um, man. 
I do. I, I I like this kind of homework. Actually, if I if I'd had this kind of passion, I'd have uh, I'd have gone to grad school. But um, as it stands, I just have a bachelor's from a college nobody's heard of. But um, the so there's a moment in in your in your stand up where you you talk about just not having a lot of ambition as a child, like you were going to kind of or not having a lot of expectations rather that you were like probably just going to end up working at Blockbuster oh, yeah. or something, and there was no shame to working in retail, but. Were what was the in high school like? Literally, what did you want to be when you grew up? Did you have like a, a master plan of any sort? I mean, I get. I feel like you hear that from a lot of people that are just from small towns or places where the where the arts are. There isn't an emphasis on the arts. It's like I just I just didn't think it was possible to to do this. And when I was a kid, I had a friend who got me into like a children's theater thing, but it wasn't. I don't want to say it wasn't a legit, but it wasn't a serious, it was a guy who liked theater, who ran a kid's program and sort of made up, you know, classes. And it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. And it was the only thing that I wanted to do. And so, you know, in high school, there was that one teacher who, you know, was like, I'm going to teach world literature and I'm going to teach theater. And the rest of the school didn't really care. And she sort of single-handedly made sure there was theater in our school. And it really was the only thing that I liked. Um, but but yeah, I didn't think I, I didn't want to go to school for theater because I didn't want to be around actors. By that point, when I was 18, I, I had already had like the attitude, full force attitude you know, I was a, a much more like very theatery, but very curmudgeonly, which is, you know, why I veered into stand up comedy. Not that I wasn't a team player. I think I just had a lot of stuff that I needed to work out on my own for myself. And I still do like a, like in a therapy sense. I think I just had a lot of social. I wasn't that I'm not going to get along in the group. That's not comfortable for me, even though I loved acting. So yeah, I went to school for painting just to get out of getting a job right away because I wasn't geared towards college either. That wasn't a thing that was, and I think that's what I mentioned in the special, that wasn't taught to me. I mean, you know, my parents are both uh, working class and it, there wasn't an emphasis, I think, just because that's not where they came from and they didn't know how to do it. So you know, art school led to performance art, but it really was my way to be like, let me buy myself a couple of years before I end up at Panera Bread, you know? Were you, um, you see, went to school for painting. Was it a, was it a certificate program? Was it a, a an arts college? Where, I believe I have a bachelor's in fine arts. It was an art school okay. in Detroit okay. and then in San Francisco. I don't think I ever got that thing in hand, but I did go to the graduation. It's unclear. It's unclear. No one knows. No one cares. That's exciting. Yeah. See, this is what I mean. This is why you play these characters that 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 have so much mystery behind them. Because <laughs> it you is honestly, a mystery. You honestly have no idea whether or not you have a college degree, which is unusual. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I, um, yeah, and all that stuff going back to like being that character. Obviously, that's my own personal development, like that quirkiness or whatever. I feel like now that I have some life under my belt, but I, st I but I still have that thing. Like I'm older now, but. I still am like, like street urchin. I, I mean, I've played a mom and I can play a mom. You know what I mean? But it's not like a clear cut slam dunk. She's the mom. Like there's always going to be. Some people take a chance. Like I'm like played a lawyer in the girlfriend experience. And that was really fun. But it's, you know, usually if, when it comes down to it, it's like, oh, there's somebody more lawyery. Like I'm always right. going to have like a something, something the off about me, you know? It's that's boy, do I hear that. <laughs> were there actors or performers you looked at? I asked this of everybody, but were there like character actors or people filling out the corners of scenes that you looked at and you were like, oh, that I want to try that. I, I think I could do that for a living. I used to just really like, um, you know, like Lou Grant and Moonlighting. Moonlighting. I was Moonlighting. I love, that was my fave. The, the, Loved Moonlighting. The two of them. I, I watched some Heart to Heart, but then Moonlighting took took over that place. Moonlighting is interesting because Moonlighting, you know, everyone goes, oh, it's such an 80s show. But it was a throwback even in the 80s. It was a throwback to something that was to a certain kind of like snappy repartee comedy that was gone yeah. By the 80s. Yeah. And it had been, you know, replaced with like, um, you know, like the the larger kind of like uh, uh, Ghostbusters type comedy. 
Um, but it was a throwback to that sort of like Cary Grant, Rosalind Russell thing that hadn't existed for a few years anyway. I loved moonlighting and my friends would make fun of me for being old fashioned or they'd make fun of me for, because uh, they thought the show was sexist, uh, but I had yeah. that show. Yeah. Right. It but was it's so weird because they had great chemistry, but apparently they didn't actually like each other. Yeah. Very much. <laughs> there was, there was a, a, a delightfulness in their um, petty butting heads. I, I loved that show. And I love that you mentioned uh, Ed Asner. Um, Ed Asner is a goddamn gift. Yeah. I could, we, we do elf every year um, uh, in the house as a, as a part of our Christmas tradition. And his, he's my favorite Santa of all time because there's a world weariness to <laughs> Santa that is, is lacking in other Santas, yes. I find. Yes. <laughs> and that's, again, it's what we're talking about. It's that able, ability to bring yourself into the role, even if the role is Santa Claus. There was and, this, uh, um, it's not even a meme, meme, meme. It was just a photo that I saw yesterday of a kid, the cutest kid, maybe like seven years old, big smile on his face. He's holding one Uno card. And the person who's taking the picture, you don't see their face, but you see their Uno hand. And it's three <laughs> um, add four <laughs> and so it's the kid is like, hey, and he's and the person's like, yeah, you're about to get like 18 <laughs> cards in your hand. But that and the person who was posted, it was like, I've been laughing at this all day. And I was like, that speaks to my heart deeply. Is that just like you're the kid is about to be that world weary. It's like, hey, uh, enjoy your fleeting moment of joy because you're about to get schooled on what the world is really like because it's three draw four draw fours that's what they're called which means he's about to have 17 cards that's awful yeah that is that is that is cutest face the cutest smile holding his one card like sorry that's Uh, the game that's the way the game is played it's my turn and you lose and you lost i'm so sorry and by the game i mean life When did you move to LA? And like, what was the, did you move to LA specifically to do stand up, to do performance art? What was the, what was the idea? I was in, I was finishing. What the fuck were you thinking? <laughs> exactly. I was finishing art school in San Francisco and I moved to LA to do live shows. And it was that whole crew that we have a lot of intersecting people. Um, but at, at the time it was, I had seen Patton Oswalt briefly. It was Greg Barrett. Blink a patch. I'm trying to think of people that you would know that that were doing live shows in LA, and I didn't have any business. But, but a lot I, of them started in in the Bay Area. Yeah, and so I was doing um, I was doing performance art, and then I was like, I got to get out of the walls of the school, and so I was doing a lot of open mics and anything in San Francisco, and I just loved it. And I still didn't really. I started to understand I was doing comedy in San Francisco because I was seeing a lot of poetry a lot of performance art. And then suddenly one night at one of these bars, I saw a comic and I was like, oh, like they know their their own mechanism. Like it just was like a light bulb in my head of like, I I don't, I'm making fun of this. I'm not, I'm not really doing poetry and performance art. That's what is speaking to me is this person but, but you're coming up if i've got my math right you're coming up at the height or the or the sort of dawn of the slam poetry scene yeah. which was huge in new york oh you got that and, math and it was right huge in, <laughs> and it was huge in the in the so we're like talking like early mid 90s because we're the same age so it's that era of like um, it's poetry, but it isn't frost. You know, it's, I got you know, so many face. zeros at poetry slams because I was using that as my performance art. I would have nothing and I would just go up and try to hold the audience's attention and I would just like tank it. Like, I don't know, purposely. I, obviously I wanted to perform, but I didn't have anything to offer. And I would just, it was like a punk rock. Like I just fucked up their their poetry slam, but it's fucking this motif is emerging from this interview of you constantly trying to self-sabotage and not quite pulling it off <laughs> and succeeding despite your own best efforts. <laughs> wow. You've really given me, you've really given me a lot. I want to thank you for that. A lot to think about. 
I, I don't mean, I, I was not intending to. I think to, that's to, absolutely to, true. Okay. I think that is like spot on. But I mean, that's so inspiring. Uh, and I mean, obviously you've got something to offer then if you're constantly attempting to shoot yourself in the foot <laughs> and, and, and running up the stairs regardless. Yeah. And the, um, the, the world is like gently like, how about this direction? How about you? How about you? <laughs> How about you stop going to poetry slams and just hang out with these people? There's another genre. It's called comedy. You don't have to. <laughs> so were you? So you're up there doing performance art, getting laughs, and that kind of gives you a chance to to redirect. Yes. So here's a really interesting thing. So you you you're established on Larry Sanders. You're established in the LA stand up scene with just incredible people in the '90s. You're coming up with like you know there's Cross and there's Blank Apache, there's Paul F. Tompkins, and there's all these guys. Yeah. And then you book Twenty Four. And was that a had you been asking like I want to go out for more drama? I want to, or were you just kind of just stumbled into it? No, I mean this is one of my like classic stories, but my agent. This is a very hashtag blessed, uh, the, the executive producers of 24, I didn't know this at the time, had seen me in Punch Drunk Love. The, okay. the, the story goes is that the editor of 24 told the, you got to watch this. And I think they were looking for some sort of techie person. And the role that I played in there of the annoying overbearing sister to Adam Sandler right. in Punch Drunk Love um, it is what got me the role in 24. But so at the time, my agent said, they really want to see you. And I told her, I can't, I just had a really bad CSI audition. And you know, sometimes you have those experiences where it can keep you going or it can just take you out for a little while. And I, I remember going in for this drama and I was like, hey guys, how you doing? <laughs> and then I was like, rape victim number two. And then I like God. went into the, I, I didn't literally say that, but I, but going into the part, I, I I do remember making small talk and them just staring at me like, what are you doing? Cause I didn't know. It's not that I couldn't act, ha have a dramatic part. I didn't know how to act in the room because I was mm. so used to like, it probably wasn't great for comedies either of just like shooting off at the mouth. It's, you know, again, with experience, you're like, they just want to see you do the thing. They don't want to but I went in. Well, that's a thing that insecure actors do where they come in and they immediately go, okay, you're going to get the part, but I'm also going to prove to you that I'm a delight on set. Totally. It's the worst. And it's so, and I am the fucking king of that shit. <laughs> it is my fucking Achilles heel. And it's this desperate need to be liked. And, um, but it is such a, it's such a crucial habit to break. <laughs> and I was like, besides doing that in the room, the, uh, that just let me know you're, you're sort of not ready to handle this room of drama. And I, and I was sort of licking my wounds of like embarrassing myself in the room or and not even really understanding what it was. Anyway, she said, they really want to see you on 24. And I was like, no, I can't right now. I need some time before I attempt that again. They really want to see you. They really want to see you. So, so it was already a dream scenario. They, they, they met me in the hallway and were like, we loved you in this movie. We want to write a part for you. And I was like, what? Like not expecting that. And even that, I swear to God, even that I was like walking on cloud nine, like that will keep me going for a few months. The fact that you validated me and, and I, I, I already, at, at that little point in the game, I was already like, you're not going to write a part for me. Like, I'm already jaded. And then when the, when it did, and, and it grew like it did, it was really is just like uh, dreamy, just like totally dreamy. But then it seemed for a moment there like you had the opposite problem where suddenly like, oh, Mary Lynn is a dramatic actor. Oh, I still have that problem. And and that's fucking crazy to me. As someone who's seen your stand-up and has lived in L.A. for close to 20 years and knows you as just this incredibly reliable force in the L.A. comedy scene, there are people who are like, oh, that's that's Chloe from 24. Oh, and it's still, dead. I realized the other day when everybody was posting, like, photos of Conan. Uh, I, I my, saw your my post. My clip was from 2006, and I, I had this moment where I had to check myself, like, no wonder I'm getting a little weary doing stand-up sets, you know, with, well, yeah, you know me from 24, not really a funny show of having to to hold people's hands as they, it's getting a little bit better. Cause you know, I was, I was going on the road proper right as 24 was still on the air when I started being a, a, an official road comic and not just an LA alt comic. 
And those were some of the weirdest shows because people had just seen me on 24. Really, they just came out to... One guy brought the sweater that I wore on 24. What? And they... I went, my middler and my opener went from being, oh my gosh, you sold out this place. And then when they had their set, it was like, what's wrong with this audience? Because they're not a comedy audience. They're an audience that stays at home and watches TV, watches dramas that got brought out of the house to see Chloe from 24 and were like- What did they think you were going to do? Oh, they I were mean, did they sorely- uh, I, I mean, in some ways the shows were really gratifying, but you know, I developed- two to five to seven to what became a 15 minute chunk of me talking about 24 and hammering people, whatever I had to do to, to, to dissipate their, <laughs> their she's art brainer. I would be like, sir, you're my Jack Bauer of the evening. You know, I just really, because they couldn't see anything but that. And then I would slowly take them into, you know, then six minutes into my actual set, it was like, what? Like just me talking about whatever I wanted to talk about, which was personal, dark, you know. That's such a carefully chosen phrase, holding their hand into the uh, the bulk of your act, helping them transition <laughs> from one expectation, which I guess is something that every comic has to do to a certain extent. Certainly. But I imagine it would be, it would be, extra hard it's funny i'm one of those actors who who specifically asked my agent like i want to go out for more dramas not in a sense of like i want to you know express my range but i just would like to double my money i would like to have more opportunities to yeah, make absolutely. a living and provide for my family i've also found that i watch a lot of dramas and i really i really love them and i like the weird not even comedic moments i guess they are within a drama the way that drama has odd moments thrown in is that can there can be funny moments within a drama. Well, there's moments on The Sopranos that were the funniest thing on TV that week. There were just like mo quiet little moments of like Tony as suburban dad yes. that were yes. my favorite things in the world. Yes. And they were happening on the darkest show on television. But I, I loved it so, so much. I'm I'm gonna back up for a moment. I, I know the answer to this, but a couple of years ago on Twitter you said you were you were done auditioning. You just put your foot down and said, I am fucking done auditioning. And then you were talking just now about going on tape and with this other actor and how it's a more humane experience. Again, another carefully chosen word. Do you think it's actually easier putting yourself on tape as opposed to going off into the rooms? Yes, you get more out of being in the room with the person, of course. But now with this world we're living in, I'm... I would rather go and read with this one actor and get through it because I have to find moments of joy. Everything leading up to that read is like, kill me, kill me now. I don't want to do it. But the weirdest thing is, is I love my job when I get to do it. I just don't like everything that you have to do to try to do it. And that, moment of quitting auditioning was very, very real. And I think, yes, I'm still auditioning, but there was a part of me that died, which was that, that I'm, I'll show up and I'll do it. It's like, you, you've, you've killed me. You've, you've killed me. And it was a bad day after a series of bad days of next level of, of, buildings and parking garages and there was a shuttle and something was closed down and there was a wait for a part that was beneath me anyway and I and I only say that from experience of just where I'm at in my life not that I, not that I legit think there's any part that's beneath me but I but you have to sort of come to a point for yourself you know when I look at my resume it's like for the world at large you can never expect anything. You can never respect a result. You have to show up and, and, it, and it will gobble you up and spit you out. But I have to look at my work and go, that meant something to me. And I can't be a broken record. I cannot show up as a new person acting as if, because that's part of the game too, is like, I'm just here to have fun. Like, I mean, is that not 95% of, at least for me, is to like strip down 
so that I can be in a place where it's new again. Um, once you get the job, that's a different story because you don't have any of those other factors. Once you get the job, you, there's a relief. And, and nowadays it's like, when I get a job, I can pay one sixth of my mortgage with that job. You know, you don't have that stress. You could, you actually can approach it and have fun with it. And there's, there's sort of a level of respect because you know that you're not putting yourself out there and just throwing it in the trash. You know that like, oh, that thing, I get to be a part of this thing. And I get to make a little bit of money and I get to be around people, which most of the time you're always going to either meet new people or see people that you know. And like, and, and that's very gratifying too, to be around other actors and producers and directors and writers. What are your kids' favorite roles that his mom has done? Um, oh my gosh. I don't know. I, I, I asked him like, are you going to be an actor? And he's like, no. But then one time years ago, we had a babysitter and she said she was an actor. And I watched him do a double take and go, my mom's the actor. And I didn't know oh, yikes. that was so sweet. I didn't know where that was coming from. Um, so he knows, but he doesn't show it, but I think he, but I think he respects me. But I just did a movie called The Tomorrow War with Chris Pratt. Chris Pratt, yeah. I think he's pretty pumped about that. That's you and Star-Lord. That's got to really hit. Yeah. How old is he? He's about to be 13. Yeah, so he's right in the pocket for that. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't care about 24. He doesn't. I don't think he knows about Gail the Snail. Which, yeah, it's just to take you. There's which no is rush. good. There's no, no. There's no rush there at all. Yeah, you take your time there. You have yeah. to be 18 that's a, before you can see. That's a great thing for him to discover after you have passed on. I think that'll be a terrific. <laughs> my eulogy. He'll be like, that'll be a terrific I found this video of my mom. <laughs> was there a um, was there a role that got away? Was there a, uh, doesn't have to be one that keeps you up at night, but was there one where like, ah, that would have been fun? I... This is funny because I've never admitted this because I talk, sometimes I talk, I talk about it in my standup, how people think I'm Jenna Fisher and I, and I haven't really fully admitted that I would have loved to have been on the office. I usually say it just in passing, like, yeah, I was up for that and she's amazing, but she is and, and, and perfect for it. Couldn't imagine it not being her, but I would have, would have been my dream to be on that show. Did you, you never, you didn't like go out for Jenna and then they found something for you later on? Nope. That show was um, the white whale for so many people we've had. <laughs> really? Oh God, yeah, because it was on forever. It was such a badge of honor to get like a couple episodes in that thing. Yeah. It was such a, it was like one of the last prestige network comedies. Yes. Yeah, it's wild. Marilyn, I... I cannot thank you enough this was such a goddamn delight thank you so much for taking the time oh my gosh i same same to you thank you for having me and that is an episode wrap on Marilyn Ricegub. You can follow her at Marilyn Ricegub on Twitter and Instagram. And you should check out her stand-up special, which she recorded at the height of the pandemic by herself in her garage. Forever! Household Faces is a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by John Ross Bowie, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Produced by Ben Blacker. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. Until next time, when's lunch? Mm-hmm.